Andrew Balpin. If you want to brass some Carson Sestouli, this is Fangraph Studio. My guest on this edition of Fangraph Studio, making one of his regular appearances in the program. It's one of his regular appearances. Lead prospect analyst emeritus for Fangraphs.com. It's Kyler McDaniel. Kyler McDaniel is the guest on this edition of the program. For just over a decade, erstwhile managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron published what he called the Trade Value Series. Those unfamiliar with it, the Trade Value Series represents each year an attempt to rank the most valuable players in baseball, accounting for skill level, age, and health, while also factoring in controllable years, their contract status, etc. As I said, Dave Cameron did that for just over a decade. However, he now works for the San Diego Padres. What Kyler McDaniel has done, however, is to fill the vacuum created by Dave Cameron's absence, the giant vacuum created by Dave Cameron's absence, and uh, to publish his own his own iteration of the trade value series, similar in some ways, but of course uh, with his own contribution, his own contacts with the industry, etc. What follows? What follows a discussion about that trade value series? We did not uh, necessarily rehash much of what one can find in the electronic pages, because uh, that is there for everyone to see. Um, I do uh, take pains, uh, in particular, to focus on those rankings about which uh, McDaniel experienced the most trepidation. Because what is more interesting than another person's fear? And anyway, uh, a great deal of discussion about the trade value series and what's to follow. Uh, also that, in the wake of Mike Bethany's dismissal from the St. Louis Cardinals, to what degree, I ask uh, Kyler McDaniel, uh, to what degree do organizations have objective means of assessing the performance of their managers? Kyler has worked uh, for no, no fewer than three major league organizations, the most recent uh, of which, the Atlanta Braves, he, he held a uh, role of some consequence. So, uh, he's familiar with this. He answers that. It, it turns out to not a very great degree is, uh, is, is how it is in terms of assessing managerial performance, objectively. Uh, also, a weird uh, conversation does not last very long, and yet, uh, and yet it's at least memorable for me, one of the people who participated in the conversation, on um, how the capacity to clone humans would affect the trade deadline. I think that's right, if I'm recounting it correctly. Uh, and maybe also how, what the CBA says about it uh, to the degrees that we know. Also, uh, on this edition of the program, Kyla McDaniel does us the honor of reciting the mission statement for and uh, the guiding principle of Fangraphs Audio. I think it's pretty clear with how the news cycle goes that people can forget about salacious things if you give them a newer, more salacious thing. That utterance and others like it to follow from Kyla McDaniel. Before we get to the conversation, however, it is both my privilege and also my professional obligation to announce that Fangraphs memberships exist. Reasonable sum readers of Fangraphs.com can support the great work that appears in those electronic pages. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, not unreasonable, but slightly less reasonable, those same readers can acquire, if they so choose, an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also liberating one from the tyranny of advertising and the distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership available by going to Fangraphs.com. <laughs> that alone. This is not something you'll find in a local store or online elsewhere. Only Fangraphs.com can deliver this kind of high-quality product to your inbox. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership. Click, 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 click. Fangraphs.com. Okay. Uh, with that advertisement now complete, let us move on. What is it? It is Fangraphs. Audio. Who does it feature? Lead prospect analyst emeritus Kyle McDaniel discussing trade value series. And when does it begin? Right now. Where are you? 
Wait, are you in? Yeah, I'm at home. Where do you live? Where do you live? In, in Orlando for a bit longer. Okay. Did you did you secure housing in the greater Georgia or the greater Atlanta area? Uh, no, but I am actively monitoring it at the moment. And I actually, of the like four houses I'm looking at, two of them got marked down in the last day. So stuff's happening, Carson. What do you use, Redfin? What do you use, Red? Use Redfin? Use Zillow? I used Zillow until I was notified, and it appears to be correct that Realtor.com's app has the most sort of uh, up-to-date listings. Although okay. I, I prefer Zillow's searchable tools, it just is missing some houses. So you're not you're not saying Redfin at all. I'm, I'm really curious as to why you're not. Yeah, that one and Trulia were uh, third and fourth right. options that eventually okay. got deleted. Oh yeah, wait now, wait. What is your gain at? What is your gain at? <laughs> well, let's take a look. Uh, at twelve o'clock? No, nine o'clock. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're you're coming in hot. How about that? Yeah, that's good. You're coming in real hot. It's because I got all these takes. <laughs> they, they call me the international house of bad takes. Did you invent that yourself? Yeah, I think so. I don't think I've heard it before. I'm gonna say. I mean, I was gonna say it sounds like something you would say. That's what I wasn't <laughs> saying is <laughs> probably about me. Is not suggesting. It's very good. Well, here's what I should really say, Kylie. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Carson. Okay. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, listen, I actually want to start off. Uh, I'm genuinely curious about something, and this has nothing to do with the trade value series, although we will address that as well. That are you eating a, a Werther's original? What's going on back there? No, I actually got um, some sort of fig bar here. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you were you just dropped your glass. You were so shocked. No, actually, the... The old, the old puppy back here is playing with a, uh, we'll say, combustible bone that if you drop it, it sounds like something exploded, and so you mm-hmm. just dropped a small piece of it. Here's a question. Mm-hmm. Mm, Mike Matheny was recently relieved of his managerial duties by St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> she okay. just did it again. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate the commentary. The, generally speaking, the capacity, at least in the public, the public sector, the capacity to measure the influence of managers is pretty limited. I think a couple of years ago, Dave Cameron had the had a vote at a ballot in the manager you know manager of the year award, and he attempted to arrive at some sort of objective measure, and you know beyond just wins or losses or wins for a club relative to the previous year. Dan Zaborski actually wrote a post about Matheny, and he attempted to find some kind of proxy, just looking at the difference between bullpen ERA, like rank and win probability added, right? So, like, are you deploying your relievers? Basically measuring your luck in, a, in an idea of saying you could probably control some of this luck. Right, yeah, yeah. Are you, are you right, and so for the relievers in particular, like, are you using the right guys in the right order or in the right situations? Obviously, that does not account for a lot of the services that a manager renders. And probably by at least some of the criteria that the manager expected to fulfill, Matheny was pretty good. But here I have a question is, I was going to say, this has been very slow. Are we going somewhere with this? It requires me to establish a number of things, a number of facts. But here is the question part. You've worked for uh, multiple major, major league organizations and played, at least according to you, a somewhat operative role in the, the most recent organization by which you were employed. Kylie's role, according to Kylie, was very important. <laughs> yeah. VIP, according to me. Hey, did you write that ahead of time? I did. This is all part of my my patter. <laughs> Do organizations themselves have more um, nuanced ways, sophisticated ways of evaluating a manager's performance? I wouldn't say entirely more sophisticated than what's done in the public uh, sphere, because it's not like there's a ton of 
additional information? Like, you know, obviously if you're, if we want to talk about something more like scouting. So the teams have TrackMan data from every minor league game, essentially, on all these players that we don't have. So there's like a level of sophistication that they have because of the information that we can't really have in the public sector, even if we get little pieces of this information, we don't have all of it. And there's also levels of research they've done about this that can, you know, some teams may think they can pick out uh, swing change candidates based on what this data that we don't have says. As far as managers go, like, you'd have to know a lot of little things that the manager generally doesn't tell the front office about this guy's mood is X, this guy's like, not hurt like DL hurt, but probably shouldn't play today hurt. Uh, you know, this guy's having a tough go of it at home, so I don't really want to expose him a little too much at this point. You know, there's all kinds of little dynamics, which is the reason why after, I would say, most games for most teams, the GM goes down to the manager's office to talk to him about what happened to get informed of some of this stuff so that they can then evaluate how the manager handled that information because there's this sort of gap. So I, I would venture to say that most teams don't even really try to make metrics for this. Because it's so tied up in what the GM, president, and owner think the manager is doing based on information that only they have. That trying to make metrics is basically, you know, using some sort of bad inputs and hoping it'll make a good output, which is generally not going to happen. It's not a good practice, right? Okay, right. So there there's so many variables, I guess, the idea. Do clubs, and this, is, I guess, this is a sort of dangerous territory because there are 30 teams, which is, I know that while you were composing the trade value series, that's something that you brushed up against is that there's not one, there's not a single truth for all 30 clubs. But I mean, when mo- when most clubs generally want someone who more or less abides by the front office's kind of uh, mandates, I guess, on strategy and tactics, but he, whose real skill is in getting everyone to buy in essentially to, you know, whatever team philosophy is. Getting in players in particular. I mean, yeah, and you can't, you can't really measure that. But yeah, yeah I, I think the general, I don't know, I guess like the spectrum or the like collection of, of sort of manager tools that, um, you know, Dave and similar people have laid out is that there's the sort of tactician end of things that we can measure pretty reliably, even though there's information about specific players, like, like I was saying, like the interpersonal stuff that you don't know. You can generally say if this guy's been successful in making the right sorts of moves, uh, at least 50% of that, I'd say we can measure. And then there's sort of the strictly interpersonal, can you make your players better? Can you, you know, instruct your staff to improve player skill, sort of the soft skills, as opposed to like the tactician would be sort of the hard skills. And in the same way that I've said before, that very few GMs, no more than like two or three maybe, are like, say on a 2080 scale, 60s at both building up a farm system and building a big league team, I would say there's very few managers who would be a 60 at both the soft skills and, you know, the hard skills or the, or the tactician end of things. You, you kind of get one or the other. And it's similar with football coaches where you tend to either get the player's coach or the disciplinarian or the offensive guy or the defensive guy. Like you kind of, you pick one and then the rest of your staff and the things you focus on are hopefully making up for his you know weakness. Do you think that, well, I don't know. I don't think like for me, you, you, that's actually interesting. You mentioned the, the tactician side and the soft skill side. For, for some reason, Craig Council occurred to me. Craig Council seems like an interesting sort. He Because he worked in the front office for at least a year, I believe, right? But, but of course, uh, what do I know about Craig Council beyond what I see on television, you know, post-game interviews, etc.? Yeah, he seems like he at least has the potential to be, you know, at least average at both. I, I, I wouldn't say that I've done a lot of research into or, you know, watched a ton of their games to break down where I think he is, you know, grade-wise on all those things. A.J. Hinch? Yeah, Maybe I would say. A.J. Hinch. Yeah, it sounds like he's probably above average at both. What about Charlie Manuel? 
Uh, not currently a manager. Okay. <laughs> Although I have seen him scouting some games this year, so he's out there. Have you? Yeah. He seems like he'd be a real delight. Yeah. I'd say there's a number of uh, former managers that if you just sort of ran into them at like a deli, you'd be like, hey, this guy seems pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, I had to, I never published it for mostly just because I'm out of sloth, but I interviewed Hawk Harrelson and it was great. And he said some things that I'd think he should not have said. <laughs> Were you his pick to click? <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't, I'm not even <laughs> sure he knew I was there, even though I was asking the questions. Uh, no, he said, I feel like he was talking about someone's wife, if, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> no, no, how, did, how did he say that word? <clears throat> so guys have other questions right here. <laughs> He's you. shuffling through uh, index cards like you're James Lipton. <laughs> Yeah, and like you're Kevin Spacey. It was how I was going to complete the metaphor. Does that make you feel comfortable? I was hoping for like a Bradley Cooper, but you know, I'd, I'd just take any famous person probably at this point. <laughs> you would, huh? Yeah. Even disgraced actors. I don't know. He's probably got a good bank count, right? I, I would you would you take that? Would you take disgrace if it <laughs> if you would you take would you take a vast amount of would you take totally guaranteed personal comfort? If if it meant you were also essentially like ostracized from polite society. Yeah, on a, on a more serious note, I would not. I actually had this conversation <laughs> with my dad uh, a couple of days ago. Uh-huh. And I said, things have worked out pretty well for me considering I've made no professional decisions based on money before. Mm-hmm. That I went into an industry where I was you know, somewhat counted out. I didn't have sort of the pedigree that you normally need to have. And there was a lot of, uh, we'll see eating something you wouldn't normally eat as a metaphor uh, and interning and all that kind of thing. And then now that I've sort of come out the other side as like a full-time employee of some sort somewhere in the industry, Mm -hmm. like it's actually gone pretty well as far as, you know, comfort, however you want to describe that. So it would be silly for me to start making decisions based on money now that I've kind of gone through the tough part of not doing that. Right, but I'm talking, uh, talking homes. I mean, you know, wealth. Well, yeah, like if, if you're if you're saying basically, here's twenty million dollars that will last you for the rest of your life. You won't make another dollar, and if you go out in public, you might have stuff thrown at you by any random person you've never met. Like mm-hmm. I, I'd, I'd like to say that I would not take that. I, obviously, <laughs> no one's offering that to me right now. It's not like a real thing. Yeah, and and much like how when you talk about like high school pitcher turning down like three or four million dollars, you'd like to say like, oh, I'm going to stick to my number, and then someone says, here's four million dollars, you're like, oh, that number seems a little high. Let's take the four million. Like, I'd like to think I would turn it down given how my life's gone so far. But you say that the people would throw things at you, but they would only throw things at you probably in the United States, maybe <laughs> Canada. Like you could go to you could go to uh, Monaco and you'd be fine. You know, yeah, you just you wouldn't want to spend time in Monaco or the Greek Isle of Santorini. Or or you could go to like some island in the middle of nowhere and basically own the place and nobody would know who you were and nobody yeah. would care. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I've I left out that part of it, but yeah, I, I, yeah. See, I to, think you're warming up to be to becoming like well, no, I'm we're exactly out like the, Kevin Spacey is what yeah, I hear you think. <laughs> I feel like there's some unsaid things that we're not saying here. Uh, yeah, no, I think if you fill out the hypothetical as that, I think plenty of people that you know work a nine to five don't like their job and don't have the potential to make a million dollars in a year. I think a lot of them would take that, especially if they could go you know live on a remote island and own the place and do whatever they want. I could see why that would be attractive if like your way to approach that is to just you know avoid polite society because they're not going to be nice to you. But right. I'd, I'd like to say I enjoy some of the uh, the parts of, you know, having friends and going to places and not <laughs> thinking twice about going in public. And, and I'm also not the kind of person that, like, aspires to, you know, retire one day in the mountains and not see anybody. Right. Right. I'm generally more of, like, a, you know, city sort of person. Yeah. 
Unless it is in other countries. But if I aspired to work until I was 55 to then bankroll living in the middle of nowhere, then you're basically telling me you'll give me a bunch of money and I can do it now? Like, mm-hmm. then I might think about it. What's the name so far? So uh, we're talking on a Thursday, but we can also include Friday because there's no way this will be published before then. About what name do you feel least comfortable so far in, in your trade value series? Uh, that's a good question. I would say there's, I mean, can I give you a couple names? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, w- I would really like to, now listen, if anyone wants to understand your logic about where you've placed players, they can read that for themselves. It's the work is all right there. So I want to get to the parts where you feel is where you feel most insecure and and weakest. That's, that's okay. The, so we'll just run down from the top because I guess by the time people hear this, all the all the names will be up. Oh, very more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So third and fourth was a big debate that essentially comes down to: Do you want to lean toward big market contending teams or smaller market, more rebuilding teams? Aaron Judge versus Mike Trout. Yes. So I ended up going with Judge third and Trout fourth because when I went through all 30 teams to see which team would take which, and in some mm-hmm. cases the team straight up told me who they would take, it seems like about 20 teams, maybe even a little more than that, would take Judge because even the big market teams that would probably prefer Trout are running up toward the luxury tax, CBT, whatever you want to call it, and his $33 million versus Judge is 500000 for the next two years or year and a half, and then arbitration the three years after. No that, would, that would make it more palatable where, you know, if Trout ends up randomly missing a month, they might end up being relatively similar players, even though Trout's like, I don't know, 11 win true talent level right now, and Judge is at like, I don't know, six, maybe seven. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's also yeah, two additional years of control. Well, so that and, and you're acknowledging an interesting point here, which is the influence of right luxury tax, the uh, the CBT, which is also the it's not cognitive behavioral therapy tax. That would be unusual. I was going to say you're dating yourself, but I, would that be like nerding yourself? What, what did you I just do? <laughs> I think I might have outed the fact that I've generalized anxiety disorder. What is it? What, GAD, CB, of course. Say C C C A. Say say CBT. You say I know what it means. Well, you say what it means. <laughs> I believe it's the competitive balance tax. Competitive balance tax. Right? I actually don't yeah, know that that's out. what it is, but I'm pretty sure that's what it you is. You got to balance out that competitiveness. Oh, you got to. Classic. Classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can do that with uh, with a pill, I believe. Classic CBA, CBA, CBT, BBC, East Coast <laughs> Family. Wait, are you are you saying it's the end of the world as we know it? <laughs> no, no, no. Is this part where you got Leonard Bernstein at the end? <laughs> I believe I believe Boys to Men actually Cohen is responsible for most of those lyrics. Oh, that's right, BVD. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I should also say that as as way of the Fangraphs approach to things, I did mm-hmm. the sort of generally approved algorithm of taking the years of control, projecting the salaries, projecting the war discounting it, changing the dollar per war as you go up, like doing that whole thing where you end up with an asset value. Mm-hmm. And Judge and Trout ended up within $10 million after doing all of those gymnastics, which is like less than 10% of what their total value is. So it's basically like within an error bar of choosing which one. And then obviously I, you know, this was heavily influenced by what the industry thought. And then when they were basically split, I had to figure out why they were split and then, you know, kind of logic it out. But the influence of, of the taxes is notable because that has not uh, necessarily been um, so robust a consideration previously. But a number of the top spenders were very obviously hesitant to spend during the off season. I mean, but the, I mean the Yankees and Dodgers most notably, right? Yeah, and this is in continuing with the general trend of the owners, we'll say, beating the players' association if we want to use polite terms. In the negotiations to the point where players over the age of 28 are basically just considered extra things. And the CBT is seen as a salary cap 
that's what sort of happens when the owners get a little too much control. And mm-hmm. so these values where they're, you know, within an error margin of error of each other is assuming that giving Trout 33 million is just sort of like, oh, you've got $180 million to spend. Like you're, you know, creating a fantasy team. And most teams in the middle of the season, when you'd presumably be trading for this guy, or at least half the time when you'd be trading for this guy, they don't just have 30 million. They can move around easily. So that like level of flexibility makes them more attractive to more teams. And, the other question, which I'd be interested to hear what you think, is should the trade value rankings be essentially averaging what the 30 teams think, which is sort of what I've been leaning towards? Or should it be as long as there's two teams that would overpay for Mike Trout, I rank him where the trade, you know, where the second team would, would have him essentially for what he would actually be traded for if he was traded, which is difficult to peg when half of these players will basically never be traded. <laughs> no, I think you did it. I think you'd. You did the smart thing, which was essentially take like a, a sort of like median competitive team, right? Like starting with Atlanta or Philadelphia, where those and the me- and like the I don't know a little above the median trade value, I guess. Right. Because there's some oh. teams that wouldn't take Max Scherzer because he makes too much money, but I kind of disregarded them. But then basically averaged out the 25 teams that would take him. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I think th- I think that that's the fair way to do it. Sure. Because there's people in the comments that were basically like, "Oh, well." At least two of the contending teams could make Mike Trout's salary work, and so they would bid against each other to the point where they, the Angels, would get so much in return that he should be number one. And I'm like, that's a lot of gymnastics to get to that, though. Let's try to, like, what what one guy I talked to said is, you're trying to make a baseline. Like, you could round up or round down depending on what kind of team you're talking about. And and I would also say, changing gears a bit, one of the other things that I've seen in the comments, which I know I'm not supposed to read, but I like to get an idea of where people are, is, oh, X player shouldn't be here. The team that has X player would never trade him for the player just above him. But there's like a little bit of a, um, I don't remember the logical fallacy, but the idea that you have the player, so you then overrate him. And so you probably never trade him for the player directly above him in the rankings. But the idea is more if all 30 teams were given that player, would they trade him for the player above him? That's kind of more what we're trying to answer. Right. Yeah. And obviously in terms of like actual real on the ground trades, there's another variable, which it would be very difficult for you to account, which is whatever the team knows about that player. I don't know, you know, personally and medically, I guess. Right. And there's, yeah, there's a couple of players on this list that have had some unclear medical issues and there's some maybe unsubstantiated, but probably real sort of makeup or long-term sort of work ethic sort of questions or in Shohei Otani's case, another one the commenters got mad about. It seems almost certain that he will get elbow surgery at some point. And people seem to be saying in the comments, like, well, he's way too low because, you know, if he gets elbow surgery, he can start hitting like, you know, four months after that. And then he'll just be like the best DH in the league until he then starts pitching again. And then he'll go back to what he was before. And I'm like, "Eh, not sure that's really how (laughs) these sorts of things play out. Like there's people convinced that he wasn't even major league quality hitter like a a month and a half ago. And then he had a good like 150 plate appearances, Mm -hmm. even though we, we liked him as a hitter and we thought he was a 40 hitter. He seems like he'll be a perfectly fine DH that shows flashes. And I also don't think that's the way arm surgery works that, you're building up to throw and then you can just sort of swing with reckless abandon at the same time. Like, I don't think there's been a two-way player that's had Tommy John before, but I'm pretty sure that's not how it's going to go. Well, there's a lot. I, yeah, right. And there's a lot of uncertainty too. And obviously uncertainty is a deterrent in terms of trade value, right? I think you mentioned that with regard to Ozzy Albies. His profile is so rare, right? Because he's small, but he has a sort of like power-oriented hacking style that there is not a, there's not necessarily a lot of precedent for for a player like that. So even though, in the opinion of uh, Kyler McDaniel, for example, who is a devotee of black swan theory, um, and has a, at least uh, one notable occasion to 
applied it to the evaluation of amateur prospects, that doesn't mean that all 30 teams necessarily share that same sort of enthusiasm for these kind of rare skill sets. And that's kind of the criteria. Yeah, and you can also see in like the Padres trade for Francisco Mejia today, Mejia is a, I think in the the post, which should be, I suppose, going up after this, that his, if we could put a 2080 scale applied to his pitch selection, it would be like a 40 and his back control would be like maybe a 65. And those sorts of players typically have been overvalued because back control is the thing you notice when the kid's 15 or 16 when they're international prospects. And that's what you, and you don't really know what their pitch selection is because in my sort of analogy I keep using with this, it's not sort of set concrete yet. So you don't know what it's going to be. It could be great. It could be terrible. You're not sure. And his looks like it may have set as being below average, which doesn't really matter at the lower levels when you have plus plus back control because you can kind of hit whatever you want. You're not going to strike out a lot because you, you can just sort of hit anything. But when you get to the big league level, those sorts of players tend to not age super well and tend not to perform, I think I called it a longer break-in period, just because they're now seeing the best pitchers in the world for the first time, so they're going to get kind of wrapped into a pretzel the first couple times through the league when they're swinging at everything, and then when they do make contact, it's with typically less quality pitches than other hitters would make. And Albies has, I wouldn't say he has below average pitch selection, but he has an aggressive approach. Uh, and often this sort of approach will not age as well because bat control is tied to athleticism and that will typically start declining for some players as early as like 25, 26. And so if, you know, if your bat control going from a 70 to a 55 materially changes what kind of a hitter you are. Whereas, you know, other players like say Vlad Jr. looks like he's like a 70 pitch selection guy. His bat control can be 55 or 45 or whatever. It doesn't really make a huge difference if you're just picking out good pitches to begin with. So there's like a little more risk associated with that. But Francisco Mejia feels a little more of a common type of player than Albies does. Because you could argue Albies has 70 speed and 80 bat control with like an aggressive but decent maybe 50 or 55 pitch selection. It's just there's no one to compare that to. And I personally, along with some other people, but me personally feel like uniqueness in an elite player is a good thing. But the same question was asked about Jose Altuve. The difference is that he's already older and has a ton of guaranteed money coming. So that's a little riskier of a bet. Whereas Albies, because of his speed and defense and age and all that kind of thing, is a pretty safe bet to be at least a good player going forward. We're going to continue. I'm interested to hear more of the decisions that were most difficult for you. This reminds me, though, in terms of, um, you know, I guess, development and kind of um, signature approaches among these players. You mentioned in your comment on Matt Chapman that he was not necessarily the easiest evaluation as an amateur player because he attended Cal State Fullerton, which I guess has... uh, well, you, you invoked at least Stanford. I don't know if it's necessarily that you're suggesting that they employ something like a Stanford swing. I know Virginia hitters tend to have weird bat paths too, or at least... Yeah, kind of Fullerton is in that group currently. Stanford has recently changed coaches, and so okay. it's unclear, but it looks like they don't. But yeah, Fullerton and Virginia are probably the two best big school examples of that now. And so what they're breaching, what, like a very flat plane? Lots of bunts, lots of putting the ball in play. Yeah, that, that general sort of idea. And Chapman who is already a plus defender. I don't, there's not much argument about that, it seems like. And has good raw power, might be the sort of, it creates, a, I guess it, what it does is it creates an unusual circumstance, right? Where you have scouts projecting that the hit tool could be better than it is, but it's based on this kind of certain knowledge that he's attending, that he's part of a certain a specific program. Yeah, and he was in, I think, an easy example of a guy that had considerable upside if you could fix that, because he had plus power and 80 arm plus defense. Like, I remember watching him on Team USA in the summer before his draft year, and it was very clear he had all those tools. 
and was, you know, very athletic and didn't have a terrible approach. It was just the swing sort of needed some work. And it was one of those things where if the swing and the sort of general approach had a little tweak, it could just sort of unlock everything to where he, you know, reaches his upside and even then some more, which is basically what's happened. But obviously, you know, when he went to what, 20th or 19th or something like that overall in his draft, some people thought that was a little bit of an overdraft just because sometimes those sorts of guys that essentially haven't been huge performers or sort of finished products as an amateur at any point projecting him at age 21 to turn into that guy is like not a high not high probability bet but you sort of can feel comfortable making a bet like that after the first half of the first round because the the upside is so big which is basically what happened which is a similar thing to what happened with Matt Olson who obviously doesn't have the quite the defensive aspect but there was like basically like questions on the contact but there was such big power in general athleticism that the upside was big enough that it was worth a gamble now what about Adam Hazley who was drafted I think was the eighth overall last year Yep, out of he, Virginia. Right, out of out of Virginia, right, which is another school that was cited with regard to this sort of bat path phenomenon. Is uh is he exhibiting signs of transformation in terms of his swing? He was interesting in that he started showing some of that while at Virginia in his last mm-hmm. year, because he was a guy that was hitting and pitching, and so it, it appeared he wasn't or at least had heard, he didn't put a ton of uh, thought and time into his hitting just because he was doing both. So it was sort of, you know, treading water to stay good at both. And then in his draft year, he started lifting the ball a little bit more. And because he was performing when you're at schools like this, like I had a friend that was at Stanford that said when Carlos Quentin was there, like his first weekend on campus, they told him, hey, you should hit some ground balls. And he basically said, yeah, okay. And then quit doing it and didn't do it at all. And they said, if he had a bad first three weekends, he would have gotten benched and transferred. But instead he just had basically hit for the next 20 years so they didn't say anything to him and there there's actually a some evidence of this at fullerton they tend to recruit players that will do the sort of thing that they want but that if they get a big time talent they'll let that guy do what he wants as long as he performs um what about i forgot who i was talking about well you were talking about adam hazley (laughs) oh yeah so he he was a, a useful pitcher and was having a huge year and was starting to lift the ball more and i think because he hit so many home runs and things like that that the coaches were like all right this is working like let's let's not mess with it and so he's basically continued to do the same thing in pro ball he just doesn't have huge tools and his swing is a little bit funky and he's uh, he's toned down the funk and his sort of hand load a little bit, but it's just, it, it, he's not a plus runner. Well, he might be plus runner. He's not a slam dunk center fielder as most plus runners are. He doesn't have a plus arm in the outfield. He doesn't have plus power and he may not be a plus hitter. So when he went sort of nuts at Virginia, it was like, oh, this might be a lot of, you know, 55 above average tools. And he's starting to become actualized in the way that he's doing it. And he sort of continued on that trajectory. There's just not sort of star upside there. Let me ask you about two, uh, Adam Hazley and Matt Theis. Matt Theis? No, no. Matt Theis and Pavin Smith. That's who I want to ask about. Yeah, two two similar flat plane guys from Virginia, yeah. Yeah, they were also at Virginia. What, uh, what are their swings doing? Um, I have not checked in on them recently. I'm yeah, sure. don't worry about it then. That's fine. I, but yeah, I'm they sure. were they were both fair. Uh, they were both sort of contact oriented, good approach, flat swing guys with raw power that they weren't tapping into. Mm-hmm. Theis is much lower, more like 50 raw power and Paven Smith is more like a 65 that wasn't tapping into it, which is why he went higher in the draft, because there's, you know, a little more upside Paven, there. Paven, huh? I said Pavin, didn't I? I believe it's Paven, but I'm, I wasn't yeah. going to correct you. It's for, yeah. I, I, I accidentally called, uh, well, now the Minnesota Twin, I called him Williams a studio, but apparently it's Estudio. Yeah, I've heard both. So Thysis is up to 14 homers this year and is hitting the ball in the air more often, so it Good appears job, he's making that adjustment. Good job, buddy. <laughs> 
<laughs> you want to have him on the podcast and tell him good job? Yeah, just to say good job. Okay, uh, so so Judge versus Trout. That was one. That was one area. Yeah, where you uh, you had to ask yourself some questions. And then Chapman yeah, was in in the run today. That was a little tough, just putting them in order, even though I think they all belong in that range. Which was Benintendi, Albies, Chapman, Acuna, Vlad Jr., Soto, and Glaber Torres. All the sort of high upside young hitters of various uh, MLB service times, which I haven't looked at the comments for the article because it just went up, but I'm sure people are going to tell me why I'm dumb because I put this guy ahead of that guy. Yeah, well, I'm interested in seeing their explanations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've, I have my own theories, but, um, but I, you know. But that, yeah, that wasn't really tough to know that those guys belong in that range, but to, in the specific order you put them in, like it, it'll be like, uh, you know, the top of a draft class, like where you had uh, Dansby Swanson, Alex Bregman, and Brennan Rogers went one, two, three in the draft. And the, the order in which you would take those guys seems to be changing every year based on how they're performing. Right now, it seems like Bregman is pretty clearly ahead of those guys. But, you know, until this year, it wasn't abundantly clear which guy was the best sort of property going forward. A couple other spots, I would say Otani at 13 because of the you know projected injury risk and can he continue being this good both ways. Is and everything. Yeah, a big open question. Right. And if you have, I mean, right now you're at five and a half years of control. If you're going to project him to miss one and a half of those years and then you're not sure if he comes right back to where he was both ways, now you're talking about four years of control of we don't know how good this guy is. And you have that next to like three and a half years of Noah Syndergaard. We kind of know how good that guy is. So that's, you know, that's sort of challenging to balance these things. I would also say the uh, short on control and or expensive pitchers. So DeGrom, Sale, Scherzer were pretty tough because mm-hmm. uh, how high do you put Sale when he could be a, you know, effectively 10 or 11 war caliber pitcher in the playoffs, but you only have him for so long. But he's so cheap, every team wants him. Versus Scherzer, who is just as good but is a little bit older, is right-handed, doesn't have the cleanest delivery, but also has like, you know, an undeniable level of skill, but also like an undeniably huge contract that not every team can swallow. Like that obviously will, it'll differ based on what your payroll and your um, competitive situation is, but then also certain teams may just be more comfortable taking a shorter contract with less money to a pitcher and paying more in prospects versus, you know, however you describe Scherzer. Which those are things we probably don't know. Those are probably, you know, behind the scenes in meetings they talk about these things. But very rarely do they, like, you know, rubber meets the road in the public and we find out what the preference is one way or the other. So those are hard to sort of pin down just because they they vary up depending on which end of the spectrum team-wise you're looking at. And so splitting the difference ends up making everyone mad. Yeah, but that's what you got to do. It's like a good democracy. Everyone's equally, uh, equally dissatisfied. What would it take for a relief pitcher... To make this now in your honorable mentions, yeah, you three. cited three, I guess. Yeah, Hater, Edwin Diaz, and uh, Felipe Vasquez. Yeah, right. Who are all you know young, dominating, possible multi-inning guys with tons of control or cost certainty in Vasquez's situation. So that I mean, that's what it would take. That kind of guy. Yeah, not to get salacious, but does Josh Hader's recent episode does that change his value at all? Do you think? I mean, teams would be less likely to pay a retail price for him right now, obviously, because yeah. uh, yeah. right now it's a very sensitive topic. And so you would get, I mean, similar to Aroldis Trevin being traded right when he had some unsavory things happening. Uh, and uh, very similar to the Roberto Asuna situation, I assume. Yeah. Like these guys have an undeniable like retail trade value, but would anybody be willing to meet that price even if they were inclined to want to do that and the player was available? Well, not right now, at least maybe a couple months from now it'll change or, you know, maybe the PR doesn't get any better. And yeah. When um, does, when does the moral scale tip? Is that what you're, 
It's when people which, stop paying attention, which I don't know how to measure that, but I think it's I think it's pretty clear with how the news cycle goes that people can forget about salacious things if you give them a newer, more salacious thing. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, I have this conversation with people sometimes is when do you think like when do you think will be the f- when do you think Louis C.K. will do will make like a public appearance again? Well, you said, like people were making jokes when Mel Gibson uh, got in that like Will Ferrell movie, and it was like, how long do you have to wait after saying a bunch of awful things to get back into Hollywood? Ah, about yeah. eight years. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I I think that what you're doing right now is you're citing the monologue by Nick Kroll and yeah, I am Mulaney. John Mulaney at the at the Spirit Awards. <laughs> yeah, I feel like people I feel like people had echoed that sentiment before, but yeah, that if I had to yeah. cite my sources, that would probably be it. <laughs> I'll be honest, this is uh, among the many reasons why why I'm a, a small miserable man. This is one of them. <laughs> I watch that monologue with great frequency. I've seen it twice, I think, cuz it keeps coming up in my suggested things on YouTube, and I often <laughs> find myself watching YouTube while I'm on, mm. in the gym. Yeah. So I'll just be like, yeah, I could go for that again. That was pretty funny. Yeah, I've 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 usually watched it twenty times. I but I'm not. Like, I want to be clear. I'm not proselytizing. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not suggesting that other people should watch it twenty times. I'm not even saying that it's that good. I think they're talented performers. I'm not saying it's that good. It just that's what I've done. That's what I've done with my time. It's also objectively like sort of densely packed jokes. Like if you enjoy like Thirty Rock or that right. sort of tempo. Well, um, and also a lot of the objects of the jokes are in the room. Which yeah. I think, I, which, which taking I, the air out of the people that are in that those sorts of rooms, like you know wherever you are on the political spectrum, like people yeah. that are super rich and are being rich and famous and powerful, so, and people are like, hey, let me tell you how rich you are and famous and powerful. Here's an award on TV. It's just like, yeah. all right, they could stand to have a sense of humor about themselves. Yeah, they, yeah, they don't need to be. Yeah, it's essentially right a place where wealthy people congratulate each other. Yeah, make, make sure you stretch before you pat yourself on the back. <laughs> So, so a reliever. So that that's the sort of reliever, though, is it, it requires a bunch of control, and I mean, some, yeah, I mean, it's control. When well, I mentioned the, the multi, I mentioned the multi-inning thing because that seems to be a proxy for will not age as poorly as the guy that throws a hundred and two out of control kind of guy. Which mm-hmm. I guess Rollis Chapman would be the exception that proves the rule there. But generally, those guys don't age super well. Like every guy that hits a hundred doesn't do the same thing for six years. Right. Okay. Yeah. Don't. That's. I think that's interesting. Uh, and we're and, and also, one... Hater. I mean, he might have been like fifty-five. Like he got really close. He did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's already been. I mean, he, hasn't he already been worth a couple wins this year? Does yeah. That seem right. He's. That's uh, impossible. Yeah. And, he, and he's got five and a half years of control. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if and he, you could if... also argue that. I mean, I have this this sort of uh, formula that I was talking about for every player, just as like a benchmark of generally where should they go. Mm-hmm. The sort of five win or better starters and like the two win or better relievers, I sort of mentally round up because obviously in the playoffs, that becomes uh, that that number can multiply by two or maybe even three for relievers depending on how you roll them out. Whereas for hitters, it kind of stays the same. So if you're super elite, I think there's a little extra in there. Whereas if you're like a one-run reliever, I don't think it necessarily multiplies in the same way. I was thinking about that today with regard to Manny Machado. Of course, he's uh, he was the best available player for the deadline. Is there a way to leverage? I, I mean, I think the answer is no. But is there a way to leverage a position player once you get to the playoffs in anything like the way you can leverage a pitcher? I mean, you could bat him at every spot in the batting order, but you'd mm-hmm. probably get caught. Right, you'd get caught. You get you. It would be <laughs> like just every third hitter. Machado comes up, and Joe mm-hmm. Buck's like, "Is this the batting order? I don't. I don't have it in front of me, but it seems like he's been batting a lot lately." Yeah, um, I mean that's how would, you would do it. Yeah, that's how you do it. Yeah, yeah, you bat him more often. Yeah, or he could play like cloning. 
It's true. I mean, it worked with that goat. If you have, actually, if you clone, say there was technology, say. <laughs> this is how this, I thought the trade value podcast was going to go. Consider this hypothetical. A team acquires the ability, somehow they acquire the ability to clone a player. So they could they could make another mini Machado, and this is not like this is not like an embryo that has to grow up and you know at least what twenty five or whatever. This is can you imagine Andrew Friedman yelling, "We've got to hatch this embryo before the playoffs start." This is yeah, this is Manny Machado. This is they he looks exactly like him, the same physical. I'm sure that there's something something dark. I'm sure there's something dark. Yeah, he's the foot. evil version with a mustache. Yeah, this, yeah, he's the yeah he's Manny Machado's doppelganger. First of all, this, I don't know if the league has a way to deal with this. <laughs> Right? This, this reminds me, I don't know if I've seen one, but for some reason I have a recollection that in the Air Bud movies, mm-hmm. that the referee will be like, you can't have a dog as your kicker. And then the coach will go, show me in the rule book where it says you can't have a dog as your kicker. Does anyone get the... I, I imagine in those movies where I'm imagining this is a plot point, that mm-hmm. the answer is you know flipping through the book for the rest of the game and being like, I don't see it. <laughs> so, well, you could just use control F. <laughs> Let's say it's, it's a problem with the you know analog technology. I guess you could go to the index and look up dog comma can he kick. <laughs> well, no, wait. Then you're just saying can he kick dog? No one can. No one can kick dogs either. It's that bad practice, especially in in this environment politically. So 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 if 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 you were able to create another Manny Machado, and as long I suppose you'd have to, well no you'd have to do it before September first because if he's not on the <laughs> roster by that date. Oh then, God! You got We should ask Mike Petrillo this: if <laughs> if you don't if you clone Manny Machado before September one, yeah, can you, well, you he play in the playoffs? A, right, uh, right. So you you could do it. I guess at that point, then you just have a bunch of Manny Machados. So it would it would be good for one year. I suppose the social implications would also be pretty substantial. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you're glossing yeah. over a lot of the details here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. On the one hand, baseball story: the Dodgers have two Manny Machados now. Um, on the other hand. Carson, you've been replaced by a reasonable facsimile of yourself. <laughs> Guess what? He works for free. <laughs> I don't know. I I feel bad. I feel bad for the facsimile. I feel where, bad. where do you come down on the clone slavery wars? I believe that's going to be Star Wars Episode Ten. What does that mean? I would I make a clone of myself, but but I enslave him. Yeah, I mean, eventually, if you like own the technology and you own the clone, you could make him do work for free, which eventually, I suppose, would be considered slavery. Does he have human rights though, as a clone? But if he's a clone, doesn't he have all the same? I mean, I'm not suggesting that I'm a genius, but like you're saying, if we're cloning your your consciousness, that you wouldn't accept working for free, that you would negotiate a hard bargain as you do with David Appleton. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I pound so many tables when I when we're when we're together. I bring special table just for pounding. Yeah, and also, I mean, that's a bad example because I would not want me working for me. I also feel like we may be a little out of our depth when we're talking about the trade value of baseball players and we're not considering the moral implications of cloning and slavery. What would this, what would the trade value of a second Manny Machado be? Actually... Depends how long his contract is, Carson. It's a good... Well, it's also a relevant point because literally today, writing about the trade, Dan Zaborski said that one of the advantages, and I think that uh, Sullivan had made a similar point in a different context about Machado, one of the advantages, of course, of acquiring... Uh, of acquiring Machado was that now you know the Arizona Diamondbacks couldn't, right? Yeah. And uh, if if the Diamondbacks had acquired Machado, that would make them a better club. Now that the Dodgers have Machado, I mean, Zimborski said something to the effect like, "There's no other place where the Diamondbacks can get a Machado." 
Or And you could argue if Machado is, say, a three-win player the rest of the year, it would take multiple trades, obviously, and a lot of trade chips to get to a three-win improvement for the Diamondbacks. Right, yeah. it'd be it, Right, it, they'd have to go about it. It would not be efficient, and it might also not be particularly valuable. Like It, it would basically yeah. preclude them from reasonably upgrading their team in a meaningful way. Right. Huh. Anyway, it would be... Uh... Yeah, it, I guess it, it would make you tired and, and yawn. Yeah, well, it's because I was editing your post, Kylie. You know, there's another one in the queue right now. No, shut up. Dylan Higgins is, in addition, in addition, they're happening at different times, but in addition to editing this episode of the podcast, he is also editing that post. Oh, is he? Yeah. That's good. Yeah, Dylan yeah. Higgins does uh, some editing work for us in the afternoons now. Well, yeah, I was just hoping that us talking about <laughs> some slavery and cloning wasn't keeping this hot take about Francisco Mejia and the similarities between the Machado and Brad Hand trades from seeing the live day. Yeah, no, he's going to go ahead and edit that. I'll take a look just to make sure you don't say anything. Yeah, it was just going to be an Instagram with a scouting report until I realized there was like a little more there. It's like 650 words, but I feel like there's some some interesting thoughts there that I haven't seen shared in oh, you know, well, other good. places. Well, hopefully, they ha- hopefully people haven't shared them in the meantime. Yeah, I'd like I'd like to uh, I'd like to both own the intellectual mm-hmm. rights to these ideas and also yeah. the concept of trade value. <laughs> the is Mejia going to catch for them? Yeah, they've okay. uh, that's actually in the piece. So I guess people have already read this if they care about such things. A Padre source told Eric that they will, which I kind of assume they would. But yeah, they can because I guess the question with Mejia is he's he's played some corner outfield and third base for the Indians. But was that because they didn't think he could catch and so it was a waste of his time catching because he's not going to play there? Or is it because they already have two good catchers so he wasn't going to catch for them, although he is good enough to catch? Right. And then also all 30 teams are going to have different opinions about, you know, can the specific player catch? Can players with these sorts of qualities catch? Can we improve this specific kind of player at catching and, the you know, the kind of shortcomings he has? Because he has athleticism. Like, he has the potential to catch. It's just more of those sort of soft skills that come with catching he's had a little bit of trouble with. Takes a while to develop those. It does, which we I reference in the article, which I believe actually Eric referenced it in the copy that he sent me to then for me to add to is that some of the same questions, it's not the same player, but some of the same questions were asked about Gary Sanchez. And he obviously has had some trouble defensively in the big leagues, but I think, you know, most teams would take him over the catcher they currently have. Is Austin Hedges, uh, is that kind of, is he, is he going to, is he is what he's going to be? Is, is the, he, is, is the is question is, you'd like to ask, is this still a thing, Austin Hedges? <laughs> Is he is or is he not an average major league player in the future? Or now, I guess. I believe he's more of a good backup mm-hmm. than a starter, but obviously the um, you know the gap between that isn't always super clear and sometimes can change. I don't get the impression that Padres see him as like a huge part of their team going forward. He had a marvelous AAA a couple of years ago. AAA <laughs> season. Yeah, he did. I'm looking at it. 146 WRC plus in 82 yeah. games. Yeah, he changed uh, he changed some things about his swing and it worked out for him. But but in the big leagues, he's got a twenty nine percent strikeout rate and a sixty one WRC plus. So right. that's a little worse. He's striking out. You know, it's interesting. I've I know that I've cited this before, but uh, I've I followed I have followed Travis Jankowski's career with a little bit of interest, not as much this year, but previous to this year. And a strange thing about Travis Jankowski, the difference between him as a minor league and major league player up through last year was that he made lots of contact as a minor league professional, but recorded rather high strikeout rates after earning a promotion to the major leagues. Usually that's something that uh, translates in somewhat regular fashion. 
Not so for Jankowski, but what I'm noticing with regard to Hedges is that he too recorded relatively modest strikeout rates as a as a minor leaguer and uh, has struck out roughly 30% of the time as a major leaguer. The, and those are players from the same organization. So I wonder to myself, does that represent a pattern? Well, and you could also say that Jankowski has, even with this increase in strikeout rate, hasn't really added any power. Like it's still just a handful of home runs a year. Good point. And, and Hedges had that issue until 2016. And that year in AAA you're talking about, he had 21 homers. And then hit 18 last year in the big leagues. His overall batting line was not good. <laughs> but he's continued hitting home runs. Yeah. Well, the strikeout rate went up. So, yeah, those two. Those two might have been related, yeah. But Jankowski, uh, although Jankowski is actually uh, making more contact this year. Would you try to somehow connect this to Hunter Renfro? Ooh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> who, had, who has a somewhat similar story. Does he? Yeah. Well, I was never, I'm never a particularly big Hunter Renfro fan. Or, or you could argue that the Padres just like certain types of players. Yeah. I remember when Hunter Renfro was in, I want to say, double A. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I believe that's when I was at Fangraphs the first time and was prepared to rank him pretty high because I liked all the tools and the story that I think I've shared on this podcast of him hunting down and killing a deer on foot with his bare hands. You know, that's it's an attractive thing. Sure. And this person said, oh, he's Jeff Francoeur. He's Jeff Francoeur. Someone said, said well, he's Jeff Francoeur. Yeah, and I said, what do you mean? He goes, oh, it's all driven by athleticism, which is going to start drying up when he's like 25 or so, and he doesn't have the um, the sort of pitch selection or soft skills kinds of things that we're talking about to make him good after he's not an elite athlete. Like, he's only good because of this thing that won't be there four years from now, which appears to like generally be true. Yeah. And is like a general sort of concept that I didn't think about a lot in 2014-15, but that I find myself thinking a lot now. When you're the short- loss of athleticism at a... Well, and also the types of players where that affects them. For Vlad Jr., if he could become a 20 athlete and still be like, you know, Edwin Encarnacion or something like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas Francisco Mejia becoming a 20 athlete, presumably then having like 50 at best back control, if he doesn't improve his pitch selection, he's going to be essentially useless at that point. Which then means of his six controlled years, you know, starting now is that the tail end of that, he might be, you know, a fringy player at that point if he takes a certain trajectory or he could turn into, as I mentioned in the article, if he can get his pitch selection to like a 50, like offensively, he could be Daniel Murphy which is obviously really good. And if he can do that and be like fringy as a catcher, like a, like a Gary Sanchez type, then that's essentially Gary Sanchez. <laughs> like, And that's really good. And there's not a lot of guys that could be Gary Sanchez. So I can see why there's, you know, a value to that. But actually I read this, reminds me of an article I read yesterday that was basically saying that the stock price for Netflix, abrupt pivot, it is basically trying to balance out the odds that it becomes an unstoppable behemoth in the content world and that it becomes, you know, basically goes to zero. That it's a, a binary stock that will eventually be one or the other, and that the stock price is trying to balance the odds of those two scenarios, which is sort mm. of an interesting thought. Mm. High risk, given how most stocks are. It's like, oh, AT and T got a little bit better, it goes up one percent, like a very sort of incremental, sort of small scale thing. And that Netflix is basically taking all the money it's making, including additional money it can raise in the capital markets, throwing it into content, hoping that that gets to a tipping point in combination with their sort of marketing power to then get them to where they are an unstoppable force. And then there's also a significant chance that they could just, you know, have burned all the money and then it runs out and then they're done. I like their shows. <laughs> My favorite so is, part. Is, is this your brother, Barson? <laughs> yeah, it's Barson. Barson Bistuli. It actually, it actually sounded too. sort of like Zach Galifianakis' brother in his uh, in his comedy special. Oh, yes. Yeah, what's his name? Uh, oh, he's funny. <laughs> Funyuns. My, this is my dog, Funyuns. Greg Galifianakis? I don't know. I just don't remember it.
We always used to eat Funyuns together. <laughs> yeah, it's the purple onion one, right? Is it Chip? I think it's Chip. Seth. Seth Galifianakis. No, it's definitely Seth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. He's wearing a turtleneck. Yeah, slightly yeah. effeminate. Yep. Yeah. Funyuns. <laughs> That's fun. Hey, guy. Hey, buddy. Who I is think this podcast you... for? What What is the target audience? <laughs> Me. Yeah, that, that 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 makes sense actually. Now that you say it, I think that's safest. I trust the people who do that more. I'm gonna make myself laugh, and I don't really care what you people do. If the host doesn't, if it's not, if the host is not moved, then who else is gonna be? That's stupid. Well, I mean, in, in this case, whether the host is moved or not, this content doesn't seem to apply to anybody. <laughs> this content has been. This content exists. <laughs> that is, you cannot deny that. Yeah. Well, we started with no content, and now we have produced content. When are we gonna pivot to video? <laughs> I don't know, but I think it'll be pivoting away from audio at least. Well, actually, I, don't, um, I shouldn't be asking you that. Yeah, um, your your cloned brother Barson is actually be doing a lot of the video. Yeah, Barson Bistuli. <laughs> for some reason, he's got a different last name. Why? That's how we tell you two apart. <laughs> he had to get it legally changed, and it was just one letter. To answer your earlier question, I would also say the uh, the young catchers William Contreras or Wilson Contreras, sorry, his brother's William and mm-hmm. Gary Sanchez with the Yankees both have some defensive concerns, but not as many offensive concerns and a lot of control and sort of upside. But then obviously, if the defensive concerns turn into he can't be a full time catcher, if it goes down sort of a Carlos Santana path, then obviously they become lesser of a player. But I think people have been asking that question about another guy on the list, Buster Posey, for a long time. But because people consider him to have all of these sort of soft skills and athleticism. He uh, is now 31 and still seems to be like, even if his body doesn't want to hold up into being 40, he'd probably be physically capable of being a decent catcher for a long time. So this is another one of those things where, you know, balancing all these different factors and sort of having to split the difference is uh, challenging and ends up with angry people in the comments. Did Jonathan Lucroy's framing numbers decline because of the lack of flexibility or loss of flexibility? Decline of flexibility? Fle- there is a thought that... I saw, of- I've, seen a, I've seen a post to that effect and I apologize, I'm not... I'm not able yeah, to and, and Chris Iannetta went from terrible to paying attention to his framing and making it much better, and mm-hmm. then he got old. He was like 29 or 30 right around that happening, and then it went down again and didn't come back up, I believe okay. is how that went. And there's also some you know compelling evidence that defense, similar to sort of back control athleticism, the sorts of things we talked about earlier, peak early, meaning that Jonathan Lucroy and Andrelton Simmons could both have elite defensive abilities that start declining at similar times in similar ways, but obviously any one player doesn't get affected the same as like, you know, the population as population, a whole. So, right. yeah. yeah, so we have to sort you of have treat to... them all the same because we don't know what the future is going to hold, but obviously they're not all going to get affected the same. Are you worried about, are you worried about the meandering nature of this program? Because once in a while... One of the people you see out at games has has listened to the program because they saw your name on it, and they're like, "What the f- was that?" <laughs> Is that what I happened? mean? At th- at this point, I feel like they kind of know what they're getting into. So I Good. figure if 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 that's if their WTF response mm-hmm. <laughs> to this sort of content, they just stop listening to it. Yeah. No. So it, we're as... we're sort of we're left with the small tribe of people that are okay with this. Yeah. Is your response that's on you, bro? Yeah, or, eh, you know, it's a poetry professor doing a baseball podcast. What did you think was going to happen? Yeah. I got out of that. I got out of that a long time ago. Hey, hey, you have definitely fulfilled your obligation. Thank you so much, Kyla McDaniel. Thank you. That has been Lead Prospect Analyst Emeritus. Kyla McDaniel currently authoring, or has just completed authoring, I suppose, the Trade Value Series for 2018. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you.